Welcome to the Heroes Journey Economy podcast. Today we're going to be talking about systems. Joseph Campbell in The Power of Myth with Bill Moyers said this about systems. This is the threat to our lives. We all face it. We all operate in our society in relation to a system. Now is that system going to eat you up and relieve you of your humanity? Or are you going to be able to use a system for human purposes? Joseph Campbell was a system thinker and the impact that these systems in our society had on our lives and how we often just accepted these systems uh, rather than maybe challenging them. Today we have Frank Dixon. He's going to be speaking to us about global system change, how we can take a look at the systems that aren't working in our society and how we can start changing those for the betterment of mankind. The author and one of the pioneer thinkers of global system change. We talked to him about what are the systems in our society that are not working and how we could change these for the betterment of mankind and what the best approach for talking about global systems change starts. So let's welcome Frank Dixon. You know, well, there's many different ways to go with this, but if we, if we wanted to go to system change investing, yeah. um, a way I would suggest getting there is to first talk about the big picture of the whole system and then we can, you know, drill down to the investing part. Yeah, let's do it. Let's, okay. Yeah. So, um, just briefly, I, I worked in, I was the head of research for the largest company in the world, rating corporations on uh, ESG or sustainability performance. And I saw many examples of companies that were making more money by acting responsi more responsibly, but that was always true only up to a point. Beyond a certain point, if companies tried to lower their pollution or, or take better care of workers, uh, their costs would go up and they'd ultimately, ultimately put themselves out of business. I saw this, so the problem wasn't so much re resulting from poor intentions of companies or companies doing bad things. It was the, the problems were resulting mainly because our economic and political systems unintentionally put business in conflict with society and forced them to degrade life support systems and different stakeholder groups. So it appeared to me that the solution was changing the systemic incentives that compel cur current corporate behavior. Right now, the S sustainable development goals from the UN are getting a lot of attention. This is fantastic work. Most of it focuses directly on addressing the problems instead of the root causes of the problems. Climate change didn't show up. It was created by our behavior and that behavior was more than incentivized. It essentially was compelled unintentionally by our reductionistic economic and political systems. So almost uh, over the past 20 years, the corporate sustainability movement has become mainstream. Uh, nearly every large company has some kind of sustainability strategy. It's also become mainstream in, in the financial sector. Uh, the, the responsible investing market, often called the SRI market, is over $30 trillion globally. Almost all of this investment and corporate activity is focused on addressing problems, which is fantastic work, but not on addressing root causes. So the purpose of what I saw long ago is that we could use investing to incentivize companies and investors uh, to drive system change in exactly the same way that we've been successfully using responsible investing 
to engage companies in sustainability uh, over the past 20 years. And for those who aren't familiar with it, the way that responsible investing or often called ESG investing, mm -hmm. meaning environmental social governance works is that companies are rated on their uh, ESG performance and then investors uh, use these to shift investments towards sustainability leaders based on the idea that companies that address these issues uh, will lower risk and, and increase opportunities. And even more importantly, companies that are smart enough to see that sustainability is important uh, are better managed overall and likely to do many things well and therefore earn more money in the stock market. So the same logic applies to, to system change. System change is an even more complex challenge for management. So if we identify the companies that are doing better on uh, system change issues, it's highly likely that they're also gonna be doing better in other areas and therefore making more money. So what we could do is we can use ratings of companies on system change performance, a process that I pioneered 18 years ago uh, to help guide investments and develop funds that focus on system change leaders. And as investors start shifting investments towards companies that are doing better on changing overarching systems or working on system change at the sector level, it's gonna put pressure on companies to implement system change strategies, just like uh, ESG investing did with, uh, with uh, implementing sustainability strategy over the 20 years. I get sustainability, I get what companies have done there. Can you give me an example of a company, you don't have to name the company, but maybe uh, an example of some, uh, a company that's looking at system change investing. Okay, well, first of all, this, this is a fairly new, fairly new process. As far as I know, um, no financial institutions are yet uh, taking corporate system change performance into account and using that to guide investment decisions. I'm out there now talking to asset managers about launching the approach. Mm. But in terms of um, how to rate, I'll give you an example in a minute, but th the key question is how do you rate companies on system change performance? With, with ESG rating, you're basically looking at companies' efforts to reduce their negative environmental and social impacts. For example, by lowering pollution or selling um, green products or more responsible products. With, with rating companies on system change is much more difficult because the context is broader. You're looking at, um, before you can rate a company on system change, you have to understand system change overall. What does sustainable society look like? And then you can identify the optimal corporate role in that. Uh, and aspects of that role would become metrics in system change rating models. Now, to, so the first system change rating model was called total corporate responsibility. I developed that in 2003, and that has three broad categories, traditional ESG, um, mid-level system change, which is looking at uh, system change at the sector level, and high-level system change, which is looking at changing overarching economic, political, and social systems. Now, in to give an example of how a company might be rated on that, we could look at uh, someone like a Unilever. Unilever would get high ESG ratings because they're doing many things very well uh, in the traditional ESG and sustainability category. They would also get high mid-level uh, system change ratings because Unilever is involved in many collaborative system change efforts at the, at the sector level, uh, such as the Sustainable Food Lab. 
that's an effort that works with NGOs uh, and other part supply chain suppliers and other partners to try and improve to uh, implement sustainable agriculture. So they'd get high ratings on ESG, high ratings on mid-level system change, and high-level system change, trying to change economic and political systems. There aren't a lot of companies involved in that area. Um, there are some things that uh, Unilever would be doing in that area. Um, but an example in general, not so much for Unilever, would be our companies, first of all, even saying that system change is important. Are they joining collaboratives, collaboratives to try and drive system change? Are they changing the way that they're dealing with uh, government? It's often companies use their influence to uh, reduce regulations, which creates incentives for them to cause more harm. Are they going to government instead and saying, increase regulations so that we can make more money by acting more responsibly? And you know, those are the types of things that a leader might, a system change leader might be doing. Okay. And it's not by any means anti-capitalist. It's, it's really <laughs> using capitalist forces for this, right? <laughs> it's, it's the opposite. It's yeah. the repair. Right. Because I think, I think some people look at ESG and, you know, it's a, maybe it's a bent, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm just saying that some people go, okay, every dollar that I have to spend on, on sustainability or other things like this or system change is a dollar that possibly shareholders aren't getting. But, yet. but what I think you're saying is, no, these, these are creating better companies and the shareholders really benefit from this. Maybe okay. not in hard dollars, but in, in other, one, in, in, a, in a better run company, so the shareholders too, but then in a society that's better. So, you're, so outside of that shareholder role where you're a mom and dad or someone who likes to swim in the ocean, you know, you're, you're able to uh, live a better life that way also. Is that, is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Well, let, let me address two aspects of that. One is, you know, um, making more money with it. And the other one is whether or not this is anti-capitalism. The first one is at Inibest, we rated about a, the company that I managed. Uh, they're now owned by MSCI. Um, we rated about 50 sectors. In almost every sector, the sustainability leaders outperform laggards by about 300 to 3,000 basis points per year. Wow. So we were proving that companies that did a better job on sustainability were making more money because they were smarter overall and they were addressing financially relevant factors that other companies were ignoring. Mm. So in terms of in the, the same arguments apply for system change. The companies that are doing a good job on this are just going to be the smarter companies who can understand working with stakeholders and collaboration, understand the rapid changes going on in society. They're the ones who are going to be better able to position themselves for, for future growth and profits. I'm, I have high confidence that uh, portfolios of system change leaders will outperform uh, their uh, mainstream benchmarks. So, and in terms of whether or not this is anti-capitalism, I mean, that's a big conversation, but I, I would say briefly, first of all, Capitalism is not some monolithic system. There are many, many different ways to do capitalism. Right now, capitalism is unintentionally destructive because in its current form, as I mentioned earlier, it's forcing companies unintentionally, it's not intentional, it's forcing companies to degrade life support systems and harm every stakeholder group. So without ever meaning to, our current form of capitalism is unintentionally suicidal. So what we need to survive on this planet and for business and the economy to survive, we need a newer 
a more intelligent form of capitalism. And there are a lot of efforts uh, in this area now. The World Economic Forum is looking at it. There's many different forms of sustainable capitalism. Sometimes it's called stakeholder uh, capitalism that looks at benefiting all the different stakeholder groups. I think the, the key issue here though, um, is to realize that capitalism doesn't occur in a vacuum. Capitalism or the economic system is part of larger social systems, which is part of the larger environmental system. And you can't look at capitalism in isolation. And in fact, capitalism isn't even the goal. Uh, the economy is the servant of society. The goal should be for humanity, number one, that we survive, and number two, that we prosper over the long term. So once we define sustainable society, that clarifies what the characteristics of a sustainable economic and financial system would be. So if we want to have sustainable capitalism or economic system, whatever name you call it, the first step is to identify what sustainable society is. And then that gives you the parameters needed for sustainable capitalism. Okay. Also, one, one other thing too, I think COVID is a huge opportunity uh, for us right now. Um, it's, it's obviously tragic in, in many ways. Companies are going out of business. People are literally dying. But our systems before COVID were unintentionally suicidal. There were billions of people that couldn't meet basic needs and were unhappy on this planet. Every one of our life support systems is in rapid decline with some regional exceptions. So pre-COVID, we were going down fast. COVID gives us an opportunity to pause. And the reason it's an opportunity in some ways is that because it's as bad as it is, it's not anywhere near as bad as it could be. If we had, for example, an H5N1 influenza pandemic could kill more than half of humanity and shut everything down. With COVID, we're, we're gonna come out of this. We're still able to function you know, at, at a restricted level, but we should look, use this as an opportunity to step back and say, what do we want overall? What's really important? And what's the role of business and investing in driving those changes? That's the point of, of system change investing. Hmm. And a lot of it is environmental. Is that the area that is getting the brunt of the damage of kind of our current systems? Well, it's, it's really both. The, the environment is, is the top priority uh, because without an environment that's clean and stable enough uh, to keep us alive, we're dead and everything else is irrelevant. So right. protecting the environment, when we talk about national security, there's a lot more to it than military security. The number one form of national security is environmental protection because again, without that, everything else is irrelevant. So the environment is the foundation of sustainability. But once we are able to have stable life support systems, then the next focus is, is on society. And there are many aspects of that uh, in the sustainability field, having to do with customers, with communities, uh, with product safety, international relations, supply chain, all of those aspects, you know, they come into, into play as well. So they're both important environmental and 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 social. Frank, there's a perception out there that the environment or some of the things you're speaking about are a threat to business. Someone will mention almost in the same breath, well, we have to think about the economy. And so, so how do we have that in our, in, in out there in the mindset that protection of the environment comes at this huge economic cost to progress or where, where is that coming from? Well, First of all, that's a really excellent point and, uh, to, to bring up. And I think uh, 
one way to frame that up is to understand the incentives that companies face. Companies are in our unintentionally suicidal systems. Companies are required to put returns to shareholders ahead of everything else. So if, so if there's a conflict between protecting life support systems, protecting customers or labor and shareholders, companies are forced often to put shareholders first. They're not bad people, they're not bad leaders, they mean to do the right thing, but the systems force them to create harm. Now, to protect shareholder returns, they can't come out and say, we want to pollute life support systems so that we could make more money, that wouldn't work. Right. So it, it, it often compels them to lie. So they have to come out with things like protecting life support systems would hurt jobs or, yeah. or hurt the economy. And, and if you look at it, that just shows the ridiculous nature of our current systems. If protecting the thing that keeps us alive hurts the economy, what does that tell you about that economy? There's something wrong with it, <laughs> obviously. Right. Right. If, if, I mean, we need, we need an economy where uh, companies make the most money by pr protecting the things that they keep us alive. They shouldn't be incentivized. There is the idea that there's a conflict between protecting the environment and jobs is just ridiculous. Um, it's, it's, it's a common deception used to, you know, to trick people into perpetuating systems that, that maximize shareholder returns but harm society. So, for example, um, you know, shutting down fossil fuel energy production, we might lose some, some jobs in that area, but we'd create many, many more jobs in renewable energy and energy efficiency and, re, and retrofitting homes and buildings. I mean, the, the, having, a, just like they talk about in the new Green Deal, um, we can create many more good, sustainable, long-term jobs by protecting that thing that, which keeps us alive. And that's just basic common sense. The idea that saying we have to hurt life support systems to have a good economy is just ridiculous. People in the future are going to smack their foreheads and go, what the heck were they thinking? Yeah, it is a, it is a mindset. It's one of those thoughts that a lot, it, it comes up a lot. And it does seem like we might be turning the corner on this from a culture standpoint because, you know, I think there's an, you know, my ancestors were coal miners in Wales and they came to Pennsylvania, you know, they emigrated here and, and, uh, they moved to Pennsylvania and they became coal miners there. But coal mi I think coal mining, if you look at all the people that are in coal mining, it's about a 50,000 person industry. It's, and, and you take a look at all the jobs that are coming from green technology now. And it's, I don't know if you can compare the two <laughs> between what Tesla and what uh, solar panels and, and just everything that's going on with renewable energy sources and the profits there. I think we might be turning a corner as far as perception on some of this. Well, you keep bringing up these, um, these, these great issues. And um, I think one way to, to address that question is to step back and, and look at the big picture for a minute. And that is that there are uh, basic requirements for surviving and prospering on this planet. For 3.5 billion years, all species have, have been required to abide by certain laws of nature. Uh, and any, any species, including humans, uh, that didn't do that, you know, either disappeared or changed. So throughout human history, all uh, economic and political systems that violated the laws of nature, which include things like equitable resource distribution, cooperation, living off of renewable energy, every system that's violated those laws has changed usually by collapsing. Examples are the American and French Revolution, 
the end of slavery in the U.S., the fall of communism in the USSR. Right now, uh, we are, of course, unintentionally grossly violating the laws of nature through our economic and political systems that compel harmful behavior. It is, it, it is absolutely 100% guaranteed that these systems will change. So keeping them the same is not an option. Our only options are voluntary change or involuntary change. Now what's happening is reality is pushing us to change. And when, when you see companies getting more involved in sustainability, it's because these, these issues are, are having a greater financial impact on them. When companies have negative impacts in a closed system, they come back and hurt the company as like lawsuits and market rejection. So by selling green products, acting more responsibly, they're protecting themselves. So right now we're, we're being pushed to change and that's another big reason for the focus on system change. We need to expand the conversation about changing our systems out to business investors and society and get much more proactive on it because these systems absolutely are gonna change. And if we don't figure out how to do it voluntarily, it's gonna hap happen in a, in a very painful way, the way that it's happened throughout human history. So I'm not at all surprised to see that businesses are getting more involved in sustainability. That was inevitable. There's no way that that could not happen. You know, the, the, the real issue is, can we expand the focus out from focusing on problems and focusing on what one company can do with their own individual pollution? I mean, that's all good work. Do that and do a lot more of it. But at the same time, we need a parallel effort of work that looks at the larger systems that are forcing companies to pollute and harm workers and cause other problems in the first place. That's where we really need to work on voluntary collaborative system change. And there is work being done on that. Much of it is focused on process, like how do we bring groups of people together and get them to work collaboratively and effectively what we need to complement that, that's the process side of system change. We also need the content side, which would be what are the specific economic, political, social, and other changes, and how do we bring those changes about? And probably the most effective way to frame that up is with the, the laws, of, laws of nature, as you and I have discussed before. With the laws of nature, we can clarify almost all the most important aspects of sustainable society. We absolutely know what's going to happen on Earth. There's, you know, sustainable systems have equitable resource distribution. Um, you know, they produce no waste. They're, they focus on balance instead of growth. They equally value current and future generations. There's implied democracy, implied full cost accounting, full employment. There's implied full employment in nature. This applies at all levels of systems from the cell up to all of, you know, the whole Earth system. The, this is absolutely what's going to exist on Earth. The only question is, are humans going to be here? If we want to be here, we'll have to be doing all those things. So that helps us to clarify sustainable society. Then that in turn shows that the systemic change is needed. Like, for example, with time value of money, we say that um, present generations are worth more than future. Obviously, that's incorrect. Nature doesn't do that. That's going to have to change. Once we know the systemic changes, uh, then we can figure out the actions needed in all areas of society to do that. System change investing is a powerful tool because the corporate and financial sectors are in many ways the most powerful parts of society and they're controlled by investing. So if we use investing to drive system change, I think it probably is the single most important strategy available to humanity to quickly 
get our systems moving in a sustainable direction. Definitely seems like the lever to, to pull, because if you redefine from a system change what a successful company does, because right now, unfortunately, some of those softer things or, or other ancillary things are important, and they're in the annual reports, and, and but... If they're not profitable, that, 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 the head of that company is not there very long. That redefining what success looks like for that corporation all of a sudden starts almost a domino effect. Got to take a broader approach to this. It's not just can I make all these widgets and pollute a, a river in China and no one will know about it. It's, it's a much broader impact. Might be a little bit more complicated to track, but mm-hmm. it's a much broader perspective on what a, a successful company looks like. Yes. And, you know, and there's no simple answers and it's system change, changing our humanity systems is the most complex challenge facing society and and also business. Uh, So there's not going to be, you know, they're not going to do it overnight and it'll be one step at a time. When I was uh, involved in, um, uh, in, in responsible investing uh, 20 years ago in New York, uh, we were the first company to argue that investors could make more money by taking ESG issues into account. Very few companies had sustainability strategies at that point. And but once investors started paying attention, they started asking questions, okay, what is the sustainability thing? What does it look like? How do we implement the strategies? And companies would take small steps at first and then improve them over time. That's exactly what's going to happen with system change, especially because it's a lot more complicated than traditional corporate sustainability. Um, you know, for example, right now there's there's few com- there's very few companies that are even talking about system change, especially at the economic and political system level. So the way the way the rating works, you do best in class ratings, uh, and and you know, so the company that gets the best rating is not perfect, far from it. All it means is that they're doing better than their competitors. So if no company is talking about system change, the ones that start talking about it and and publicly saying that it's important, we're going to start to look at that issue. They're the leaders, even though they're doing almost nothing, and they get the highest rating. But that gives gives them an incentive over time to do more and more, because as others try to catch up to them, they'll have to keep moving forward to stay on top. Is there an example out there of a company or country that is leading this or is it just so uh, nascent right now that there's no one really out there that we can point to? Well, um, in terms of countries, uh, there, there certainly are some that do a much better job on sustainability. The Scandinavian countries uh, come to mind. They have yeah. some of the highest quality of life and, and standards of living in the world. Part of, it, part of that is a mindset. They do a very good job of, um, I think, implementing democracy the goal culturally and with their systems is to maximize the well-being uh, of all citizens. So they have almost no poverty. They use the, in many Scandinavian countries, they use the public wealth to, uh, you know, provide a floor for everyone so that, you know, so that people have, have their basic needs met. They provide a lot of freedoms and encouragement to follow their hearts. They, you know, um, Finland, for example, has uh, by many measures the, the, the best education system in the world. They, in, they encourage their young people to follow their hearts. They give them a lot of freedom. Uh, they do a lot less uh, standardized testing. They spend less time in school. They do less homework and they still outperform U.S. students. So um, in terms of countries that are doing a good job, 
that mindset of taking care of everyone, especially future generations, it's what's needed for companies to move towards a more sustainable, uh, more sustainable performance. And it, that mindset also will lead to the recognition that we have to change our systems because it's the systems that are, that are forcing us down and, and we need new systems that'll force us up. In terms, of, in terms of companies doing it, as I said, there's a lot of work going on at the sector level, a lot of collaboration, uh, sector level collaboration. There's also collaboration around climate change and other environmental and social issues, collaboration around stakeholder issues. A lot of that is occurring. And we're beginning to see more high level system change around focus on capitalism reform. So I think things are looking good. It's still early stages for company involvement in high level system change, but you know, just like 20 years ago with sustainability, you know, let's, let's help them to move forward with it. They'll need advice about how to do it. And I'm sure consultants will show up to advise companies on how to do system change. That's one of the things that I do. They would come to you for, for that advice. I know the, the Finland, the Scandinavian, I think there's almost like a backlash on those countries right now when people use them as an example, because there's, I think there's high questions whether that could actually be replicated in other countries that just don't operate like they do. They are a fairly homogeneous society, so they, they, they've kind of agreed on these things as a country but they're much different. And I'm not saying this is an excuse for us not to pursue it, but I've heard this said that Scandinavian countries are not like, let's say the United States, where we are all from, except for Native Americans, we are all from other countries and that we're not as like-minded maybe. And something like that would be extremely difficult to implement here. And you kind of nod your head and go, yeah, maybe, maybe it wouldn't work here. You, know, you, don't, you don't know whether it's true or not, but what, what's your response to when people kind of look at those countries and say, yeah, that would never work here? Well, I think um, that gets to a really important issue, uh, you know, in some ways the most important. Um, our country was formed during the Age of Enlightenment, where, uh, you know, prior to that in the dark and Middle Ages, superstition uh, and fear dominated society. During the Enlightenment, we honored science and rational reasoning. It moved society forward in many ways. It led to the formation of our country. In many ways, now we've slipped back into, into a kind of a new dark ages where people are, are relying on superstition, blind faith, belief, belief in what media says and the types of arguments that, that you were saying. What we need is to encourage people to begin to think for themselves and look at, look at the big picture if you um, to take, for example, the idea that we couldn't do what Finland does because we have a more heterogeneous society, um, that just doesn't stand up to rational thought. Uh, mm -hmm. The reason for those excuses, lots of times are just blind faith believing in what somebody that you trust says without thinking about it. But many times it's vested interests who are opposing changes that, were, that would threaten their interests. So just to go a little more deeply in, into that issue, in the United States, we um, rely on local property taxes to, to fund a large percentage of education. That leads to extreme inequalities in, in our uh, educational system, so that in wealthier communities, you might spend four times as much on a, a child's education than you would in, say, an, an inner city community. But in, in Finland, uh, like in many other countries, the bulk of education funding comes from the federal level, so that every child urban or rural, uh, gets the same uh, type and quality of education. 
We absolutely could do that in this country. There is no reason why we couldn't ensure that every child in the U.S. that we spend the same amount of money and give them all the high quality education they get in Finland. Finland spends a lot less on education than we do, um, but they achieve better results. So of, of course we could do it, but believing that we could, and the idea that because we, we have more uh, people of different races means that we couldn't do the, couldn't do what they do is, is just wrong in so many ways. First of all, they do, they have a growing number of immigrants there in, in Finland. So they have a pretty diverse population, but the, the ch minority children have the same performance as, as the, the Finnish children there. So, uh, and the idea that somehow because we have black and brown children here, we, we can't uh, maybe spend as much money on them is just absolutely absurd. It's, it's one of those things that's when you look at it, that's why I'm talking about enlightened rational thinking. If you drill down into a lot of these positions, like we couldn't do what Finland does, why are we dumber than they are? Of course we could do what they do. That all that is really is vested interests wanting to protect systems where maybe we spend four times as much on kids in wealthy communities than we do on the inner city. Of course we could fix that. And a lot of this is metric-based or science-based. We'd be looking at more facts maybe than what we're looking at now. Pick the environment. Uh, there are some strong facts about what we're doing to the environment, yet we seem to be debating it still here. <laughs> it's kind of not being debated in other countries. They're kind of accepting this. What Finland's done is aligned on, on the truth, on, on some uh, known facts of what, where, they, where they are and where they want to go. And I, I think that's sometimes a struggle, a little bit more of a struggle here. Well, in, in terms of Finland's education system, in my whole system book, uh, Global System Change, um, I, I wrote a lot about education. So I studied their education system a bit and they decided um, a while ago to make education a priority. And so they've done uh, many you know, wonderful things there. As I said, children are honored in, uh, in Finland. Um, it's becoming a teacher is one of the most sought after careers. They give free education to, uh, to people who become teachers. I think only one out of 10 people who apply to become a teacher in Finland actually gets a job in it. It's a wonderful uh, profession to work in. The teachers are at the same level as doctors and lawyers in Finland. And that shows, I mean, Teaching probably, you could make a case that teaching is the most important job in society because our children are the most important. So the people that teach them uh, should be well paid, well compensated. It's a, it's a wonderful system. As I said, the kids, um, are, they spend a lot of time outdoor, outdoors. They have a lot of uh, freedom. They're not in school as much as our kids are. Uh, they don't have the standardized testing. It's just a, a, much, a much better system. And it is very rational and metric based, you know, they're measuring their performance. If we, and when you look at the metrics and compare the performance of, of Finland and many other countries to the US, we're not good at all. In the 50s and 60s, we're, we were world leaders in K through 12 education. Now we're, you know, depending on which test you look, we're way back, maybe number 20. Mm -hmm. So we've got the wealth, we, we could be do, doing better, but we're just not, we're just not doing it. Part of the reason is that our society and economy is so focused on economic growth and maximizing shareholder returns. So anything that interferes with those goals, like providing high quality uh, K through 12 and higher education to young people uh, is suppressed, which is shooting ourselves in the foot for the long term. Uh, but it, it lowers taxes and it allows us to switch more and 
shift more funding to the top of society. I mean, we, we've had concentration of wealth in the U.S. under both parties for 40 years because we've been disinvesting in social welfare and implementing massive corporate welfare programs through many different uh, approaches, limited liability, externalities, fractional reserve lending. There are many ways that we're unfairly concentrating wealth at the top of society. We could have world-leading uh, healthcare. You know, we don't. We're the only um, developed country that doesn't have a government-owned or government-managed system, and we pay two to three times for healthcare, more for healthcare than most other countries. We've got the lowest coverage by far of any developed country, and we have mediocre results. So there's a lot of problems here in the U.S. Uh, you know, that's why I think we need to, um, you know, get business involved in system change, but also help to raise where, awareness among citizens uh, about what's actually going on and encourage them to think for themselves rather than blindly believing the vested interest ideas uh, that they hear in media, like Finland, the U.S. couldn't do what Finland does with education. It would start with investing. Uh, what would trigger that, do you think? Hero's journey, getting back to the hero's journey, sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes you're getting into a marriage and you say, okay, I'm going to lose some weight and I'm going to take care of myself because I've got a family to support and I want to be around to walk kids down the aisle. And so they start, someone starts on a, a health journey. But then sometimes they get a prognosis or a diagnosis from a doctor and that uh, that's a bad thing. And what do you think is going to trigger change or to these systems that might be good, you know, because it seems like it would have to get pretty bad for people to, for the back against the wall type triggers this change. Do you think us, we could, with the way things are right now, we could step back and say, okay, things are good here, but they could be better. And we're going to be changing a lot of these things and not being maybe, we don't have to lose the dollar as a reserve currency and fall a falter back uh, from um, like a world of uh, like a world thought leader before we maybe are shaken up. What do you think would trigger that? Well, that, that's a great question. And you also mentioned the dollar and I'm right in the middle now of writing an article about money creation, but let me address the, the first part in terms of what would trigger it. Uh, you could have two levels of trigger. I, I mentioned earlier that, that our systems are absolutely going to change guaranteed and it'll be either by voluntary or involuntary means. So, the, and I, I, I'm sure, you know, I think what you mean is we want to do the voluntary so we don't get faced with the involuntary. Bottom line for that is that reality uh, always uh, corrects, uh, reality always wins over perceived reality. So there are many people that don't believe that climate change is real, for example. Nature doesn't care what humans think. And if, if we don't, if our beliefs aren't aligned with reality, then pain, all the pain, unfortunately, pain and suffering will be provided until we finally see the, the error, the, er, the erroneous uh, ideas that we have. So to try and, and trigger change before we hit the wall, and by the way, in some ways, we, we already are hitting the wall. There are mm -hmm. people that are suffering on this planet, but hit the wall worse. I think the best way to do it is to use the profit motive. Um, if we help companies and investors to understand how they can make more money uh, by working to change systems, that's going to be, then everybody's happy. When I, when I, 20 years ago, when I worked in New York City, going to Wall Street, trying to encourage uh, asset managers to do responsible investing, we faced a skeptical audience because at that time, 
many of them thought, if you do responsible investing, you'll make less money. So we went and said, no, you'll make more money. And here's the proof and here's the logic. And now that's become mainstream, the arguments we were making. So the same thing will happen with system change. If we go to companies and say, start, you know, try to work to change the systems, uh, you know, they might go, well, we haven't done that. Plus we're making record profits from these current systems. Why should we change them? So we help them to see how they might be helping you in the short term, but they're gonna put you out of business in the long term. Uh, because they're de destroying the things that support business and the economy. You can't have a business in the economy without the environment and society. So, and, and then we help them to see that there are smart ways to do this. You can do this in ways that are going to improve your reputation, that are going to make the best employees want to work for you, that are going to give you much more appealing products that have a higher market share and higher profit margins. So if we go out with a what we saw on Wall Street is once we made the financial case, then everything else was gravy. If we could show them how they could make more money with responsible investing, everybody wants to help the environment and society. Not one business leader or large asset manager intends to cause any harm. It's the flawed systems that are causing that. So if we help, help companies and investors to see how they can make more money, then on top of that, explain how, and this will help your kids and you'll be, you know, the future will look back at you as a great leader who did the right thing. That's all great. I, I think that's how we can trigger this type of change by making those type business case type arguments for system change. Yeah, well, you've seen it with sustainability. I'm, I'm a little less optimistic than you. I think sometimes we, the Clean Water Act came after the Cahoga River fire. You know, I think some of these things, some of these things that we have to be shaken up a little before we make these changes. But I'm, I'm hoping you're right, though. I, I do believe that it would start with financial, right? The financial investments would drive a lot of this because uh, behavior would change to that investment criteria. And then it would just build on itself from there. Well, that, that's... It's, it, 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 that's true, definitely. But in some ways, the fires are already burning. Companies are doing this more than anything else is because they're feeling the heat from customers, from, you know, from different parts of society. That's why they're getting involved in sustainability. And the reason that the World Economic Forum and many other mainstream groups are talking about capitalism reform is because they're seeing the problems of, cap, of the current form of capitalism are becoming obvious to many people. I, in addition to investing, Maybe the most important leverage point, although this is more longer term, is to um, raise public awareness because the people collectively are the most powerful force in society. They could change any business or government almost immediately if people work together uh, on their common interests. But unfortunately, it's easy to divide citizens, as the US founders well knew, into debating factions, and then people like conservatives and liberals. And then when that happens, people are, are wasting time focusing on false enemies, you know, people in the other party, instead of focusing on real problems. So there's no one answer. System change investing is important, but we also need to raise public awareness about what's going on. Uh, I, I talked, I mentioned money, uh, money creation earlier. There are lots of uh, things happening in society that future people will look back on and the way we look back on slavery. And one of them is the way we create money uh, in this country. From the beginning of this country, we've allowed banks to create money through lending instead of creating it ourselves. So that for example, when our government runs a deficit, uh, banks create money, loan it to government and we pay interest on it. That's about $400 billion a year. 
if we took back our right to create money, which the Constitution gives us, when government ran a deficit, we'd create the money through government and pay no interest. So allowing banks to create the money supply, uh, you know, nearly doubles federal individual income taxes. It costs citizens about $500 a year, $400 billion in interest expense on the national debt, and another $100 billion about in uh, lost interest income that, that, you know, we would get if we were creating money instead of letting, letting banks to do it. Do how, it. how would we create money? What would that look like? <laughs> That's one of the, the crazy things about it. The, the way people don't understand it. I went to the Harvard Business School and I didn't learn this there. It wasn't until afterwards. But the, what we have, the US dollar is, is a fiat currency like other major currencies. Fiat means that it's created by decree. Yeah. In other words, somebody just declares that money exists. And that's how it exists. So the way that the banks or the government creates fiat currency, currency not backed by gold, uh, would simply to just say that it exists. So when somebody goes into a bank to take out a, uh, you know, say, a $100,000 mortgage, that money often doesn't come from anywhere. It's just created out of thin air by the bank. So, a so somebody will, you know, a, a bank person will type on the keyboard and the customer's uh, bank account goes from zero to a hundred thousand, then they pay that back over, you know, maybe 20 years and pay another hundred thousand dollars in interest. What did the bank do? They simply typed those numbers into the computer. The money didn't come from anywhere. It's, it's, they, we've allowed them to create it out, create it out of thin air. That, you know, so the interest that they make on a lot of the money there, I mean, some loans are made from time deposits and owner's equity, but most of it is created out of thin air. Fractional reserve lending is often described as one way that banks make money, but mostly very simply, they just create it. So how would we, the people, make it? Same exact way. We would, we would and Milton Friedman, you know, suggested this too, that money creation, right now money is created by banks through lending, but money creation and lending should be two separate functions. Money creation is a function of government and lending is a function of banks. So if we took back our right to create the money supply, we would simply just claim a billion dollars exists. That, that's it. That's how it's created. And type, type, then the government types the numbers into the keyboard and a billion dollars shows up. Of course, you can't create unlimited amounts of money, either public or private sector, because that would make the money worthless. So right, just like we do now, we would have mechanisms in place to make sure that we controlled the money supply in the way that it wasn't... Uh, in, in inflationary or deflationary. There's, there's, there are so many as, aspects to this. Right now, when banks control the money supply, the, the goal of the money supply is to maximize the wealth of bank owners. If we, the people, controlled the money supply, uh, we could, the goal would be to maximize the well-being of society, and we could do a lot more to help society. As an example, Wright Patman, U.S. Congressman in 1941, called the current bank money creation system idiotic, and he used the Panama Canal to explain it. So the Panama Canal cost $50 million, and then we paid another $75 million in interest to borrow that $50 million from the private sector. If we had created the money ourselves, the canal would have cost 60% less. Multiply that over thousands of times, and you can see that allowing banks to create the money supply has literally cost citizens trillions of dollars in increased taxes over the, over the history of our country. The reason that we have a national debt 
is because government allows private sector to create money and we borrow it from it. There would be little or no national debt if we took back our right to create the money supply and created it ourselves. We also, for, because we could, the interest expense raises the cost of infrastructure by about two to three times. We need to spend at least $2 trillion to upgrade our roads and bridges in this country. If we created the money ourselves instead of borrowing it, we could do two to three times as much infrastructure work for the same amount of money. That means we would create two to three times the same amount of jobs. There are all kinds of benefits to taking back the money creation. That's just one of the many things that I've written about in my global system change book, but it's, it's one that's timely now because I'm, I'm writing an article about it. Yeah, it certainly is. So the amount of money that we're pushing into the markets because aggregate demand is so low, it'll be interesting to see well, where, the, what that happens. The, the money supply is very is confusing to many people as it was to me. Um, and it, I had to put some work in to kind of figure it out. But when you peel back all the deception, it's actually actually pretty simple. So right now, uh, you know, the Fed has been creating money through quantitative easing, uh, but almost all that money goes to the banks. The Fed is uh, completely owned by banks. It's not part of the U.S. government. For us to take back money creation, we would make the Fed part of the U.S. Treasury and do what Milton Friedman says, implement 100% reserve requirements, meaning that banks would no longer be allowed to create money through lending. What they would do is they would, we'd create, we the people would create money through government, loan it to banks at a low interest rate, that, that interest income would be used to lower taxes, and then banks would lower, lend the money out at a higher rate and make their, their profit on the spread. The idea that, and right now during COVID, we need to spend a, a lot of money to, um, to stimulate the economy and protect people who have lost their jobs and you know, state and local governments who, who can't fund essential services. And Republicans mostly argue that, oh, we can't do that because that'll raise the national debt. Well, the only reason that'll raise the national debt is if we let the private sector create the money and we borrow it to stimulate the economy. If we create it ourselves, then, then we don't pay any interest on it. And somebody would say, oh, well, the creating, uh, government creating money uh, increases the money supply and that makes it inflationary. Well, the thing to understand is that's already happening. Yeah. Banks are creating money out of thin air. If we take over the function, it doesn't mean we're creating money. It just means that we're creating it instead of banks and we're, and we're keeping the profit from money creation to lower our taxes and we're making decisions about how the money supply is used. So there's also, in spite of all the money that we've, create, we've created uh, during COVID, it hasn't caused inflation. So there, there are many ways to, if, with public sector money creation, to manage the money supply so that it's not inflationary. We can take money out through taxes. There's a well-developed modern monetary theory that talks all about this. Of course, banks are going to try and create the, the illusion that, um, that public sector money creation would be terrible because they might lose several hundred billion dollars per year of revenue if they're no longer able to make money by, by loaning uh, money to government. If you look through it, if, it all boils down to one simple question. Who should be creating the U.S. dollar? We the people or banks? If banks create the money, then when we need it for deficit spending, we're going to pay interest on it. If, if we create the money, then we're going to loan, then we loan money to banks and we earn interest. So one way we pay interest, the other way we earn interest. It's pretty clear when you, when you get right down to the basics of it. 
Well, that would be a big system change <laughs> if we were to do something like that. It actually wouldn't be that hard. All you have to do is, is make the Federal Reserve part of the U.S. Treasury and implement 100% bank reserves. Right now, the banks, of course, are going to say things like government is incompetent and it would be impractical to do that. But it's not black and white. You know, we, government's done many things well. We can use the same management processes in the private sector that we use in the public sector. Government could do a great job. And if the people realize that we could quickly get rid of the national debt, uh, cut federal individual income taxes over time by 50%, uh, and lower interest rates overall, and provide interest-free funding for infrastructure, for higher education, and many other beneficial purposes, in other words, once the people realize how beneficial it would be to take back creation of uh, control of the money supply, creation and control, then it will become impractical to not change because the public will not tolerate the current system. It's like that famous saying, darkness can't survive in the light. The only thing that's keeping our current money system in place is lack of public awareness. Once the people understand, it's going to change very quickly, I think. That, that's the purpose of this article I'm writing. Okay, well, can't wait to read it. The one thing that was clear in 2009 was that it seems like a lot of financial t institutions operate under the rules of uh, private profit, public loss. And that, you know, when they start losing money, it's all our problem. But, uh, you know, in a good year, you know, we're not going, we're not going on vacation with those bank owners. <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing quite well, very quietly. But when they're not doing well, it's a, it seems to be a public issue. Well, you keep, you keep introducing these very interesting subjects. Uh, two there, the, the bailouts and also the banking system. Taking back the right to create the, uh, uh, to create money, it's not going to, uh, eliminate the banking system. We, just, we need a strong, robust banking system. If, the, if we separate lending from money creation and put money creation with government where it constitutionally should be, banks are still going to have plenty of opportunities to make money. Maybe they'll borrow uh, money from government at one or two percent and then loan it out at 15 or 30. I mean, they'll still be able to make money in many different ways. Also, they're going to be, there's going to be less risk of bank runs. Uh, government could even assume some default risk for beneficial loans. The goal of the transition will be to, to not only maintain, but to strengthen our current banking system. So banks aren't going anywhere if we take back a right, the right to create money. They might, they might try to create the impression that it's going to hurt the banking system, but we'll just intelligently do it in a way that not only doesn't hurt them, but makes them even stronger. But now that, that gets to the point, the key point about the bailouts. The bailouts, many issues there. One of the most important is the Federal Reserve. A lot of things, most people don't understand that the Federal Reserve is completely owned uh, by private banks. Um, many times obligations of the, uh, of the Fed become obligations of the U.S. Treasury, meaning U.S. taxpayers. So during the 2008-2009 crisis, we spent up to $12 trillion to bail out banks and other wealthy investors who had made highly risky investments in CDSs and uh, uh, derivatives and other types of uh, speculative high-risk high areas. And so most of that bailout money came from the Fed. So what happened was the Fed was, was creating new money without permission from the taxpayers and then often transferring that to the U.S. Treasury, meaning the taxpayers had to pay it back. 
and not telling uh, taxpayers what they were doing with the, with the taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a huge injustice. That's why the, the Fed uh, should become part of the U.S. Treasury. Not, not, when the Fed is owned by banks, the banks basically control the Fed. So if banks are controlling the things that regulates them, it means they're regulating themselves, which is equivalent to no regulation. That's why they're allowed to do things like charge exorbitant interest. Before uh, 1980, there were usury laws in 48 states that capped interest in usually in the 8 to 12% range. Now, we got rid of those with deregulation in the 1980s. Now, banks, if there are usury laws, they're often in the 35% range, or there's no limits on interest. You know, charging interest throughout human history was seen as a crime often equivalent to murder because it's taking advantage of people who need money. Uh, Judaism and Islam restricted or prohibited, for example. In Dante's Inferno, uh, usurers or uh, people who charged interest were consigned to a lower level of hell than murderers. But we, we now, we accept, we accept charging interest as, as part of our society. We, many times, if we were creating the money supply we, what we're doing when we pay interest, the money supply belongs to us. We're essentially paying interest to use our own money. When, bank, we let, when we let banks create the money supply and pay them interest for it, we're paying interest to use our own money. It's unjust. Um, you know, it, it's one of those systems that obviously is going to change. It, it, won't stand, once pe- it won't stand up to public scrutiny. Once people understand what's happening with their money supply, they're going to demand a change. And, you know, now we desperately need it. With COVID, our economy is in the tanks. And, you know, some articles say it's going to be in the tank for a very long time. We're going to need to invest in society. And we can do it with interest-free money if we create the money ourselves. It doesn't mean we're going to have rampant inflation. We'll be able to better control inflation. Because, you know, it, it keeps getting to these good points. Right now, the money supply is created by thousands of different banks and other lenders who are, who are primarily focused on maximizing their own financial well-being. If we, the people, take back creation of the money supply, only one entity will be creating money, and the focus of the money supply will be on maximizing the well-being of society. That's going to make it massively easier if we have one entity creating money rather than thousands of banks. Trying to control the banking system as, as the, the, the money supply, as the Fed does, for example, with open market operations, is like trying to herd cats. Also, when, when banks create money, they're not really creating money, they're creating debt. Uh, so whenever uh, loans are repaid, the money supply shrinks. When loans are made, the money supply expands. It leads to an inherently unstable money supply. If we, the people, created uh, the money, then when debts were repaid, money wouldn't disappear. It would be a vastly easier to manage money supply and far more stable. I mean, it would be hugely beneficial for the economy. If, if you compare the two, it, there's virtually no metric uh, where private sector money creation is better than public sector money creation. That's what I'm, I've already written about that in my book. I'm writing a shorter article about it now, but it's just one of those things that, that people in the future, like I said earlier, are going to smack their foreheads and go, what the heck were they thinking? Why were they paying interest to use their own money? Why were they creating a national debt when they didn't need to? Ridiculous. What other systems do you think are like that, that we're going to look back on it as slavery or some kind of really arcane process that we just did it because we were kind of on autopilot or 
it's just because it was the way it was done. It seems like uh, obviously the way we create money is one. The environment is going to, things are going to change that we're going to be incorporating the environment into a lot of our business decisions. What, what other things do you see from a systems change that we're going to look back? It may not be us. It might be our kids' kids or future generations that look back and say, hey, they had this all, they had this all wrong. Well, let, let me give you, it, it's a great question because I, you know, at every point in history, people have looked back, uh, you know, at, at, and seen the flaws of past societies that people at the time couldn't see. Yeah. So, you know, we look back and say how horrible slavery is. People in the future, just like you say, are going to look back at some of the stuff we're doing now, but we don't see the problem. So let me answer that question in a general and a specific way. In a general way, um, system change is complex. Uh, you can frame it up with three main principles. One, emulating nature. Uh, sustainable systems are all around us. The, the model for a sustainable economy is in our bodies and in nature. That's a main way to do it. A second one is democracy. Um, it's based on the equality and right to self-government of all citizens. That's the only sustainable form of government. We don't have that in many ways. We have plutocracy now in, in the US. Uh, people are allowed to spend unlimited amounts anonymously on elections. So it's the wealthy that control both, both parties and, uh, and our government. That, uh, that's why we've had concentration of wealth for 40 years under both parties. Mm. Uh, and then, the, and then the, the third one, which is the most important one, system change principle for the corporate and financial sector is the rule of law. So when I was at Innovest and saw uh, companies being forced to degrade uh, the environment and society, there are many system flaws that force that. But if you rolled them up into one overarching system flaw, it would be the failure to hold companies fully responsible for negative impacts. And that, that creates a situation in competitive markets where they have to cause harm. So one of the things that people in the future are going to look back and think is crazy is the way we deal with uh, uh, corporate responsibility. For example, with individuals, we have laws against murder, assault, and robbery. But with business, we allow them, for many good reasons, but we allow companies to cause massive environmental and social harm. And then we go and try and encourage them with business cases and say, you know, would you voluntarily stop causing harm? They can't do that under current systems. If they do, they'll kill themselves. That would be like if we didn't have murder laws and we, want, we had a problem with murder and we wanted people to stop murdering, we went out to citizens and said, would you, you know, please stop murdering people? And here, let me make the business case for not murdering someone. You'll be happier and more successful if you don't murder anyone. That's one strategy, the voluntary approach. The other strategy is make murder illegal. That's what we should be doing with business. People in the future are gonna say, why didn't you just prohibit companies from harming life support systems in society? If we do that, that's gonna create a situation where companies make the most money by acting the most responsibly. Under our current systems where they're not held responsible, they make the most money often by acting irresponsibly. That's the main reason that climate change uh, and all the other big environmental and social problems exist. So that's the uh, big picture. That's the big picture answer for what people in the future will look back and, and, and think we, we were crazy for doing, not holding companies responsible. The specific answer, and this has kind of been a passion of mine, I'm, I'm very interested in the founders of the US and 
and the formation of our, you know, the writing of our constitution and the intention and the structure of our government. One very large problem, you know, besides uh, money creation in our government is the structure of the judicial branch. Madison and James Wilson and many other uh, founders, James Madison, James Wilson, and many other founders made clear that the judicial branch was meant to be uh, the weakest branch of government because it's, um, it's, it's, it's unelected and therefore most distant from the people. Article one, the legislature is meant to be the strongest branch because it's regular elected and closest to the people. Uh, artic article three, section two, gives the legislature the power to restrict the Supreme Court uh, on any, uh, on any uh, appellate case, which is almost all cases before the Supreme Court. There's also nothing in the Constitution that, that says lifetime appointment. Uh, they said that the ju judges will be appointed uh, during good behavior, which is interpreted to mean uh, lifetime appointments. So what happened uh, is with Marbury versus Madison in 1803, the Supreme Court gave itself the power to avoid executive uh, and legislative acts. When they did that, they put themselves above the, uh, the executive and legislative branches. They unilaterally made themselves the most powerful branch of government and then they're lifetime appointed. So there's nothing that the people can do about it. So for example, if, the, if citizens establish campaign finance laws to prevent the wealthy from controlling government, um, they can, you know, businesses can give money to politicians who appoint pro-business judges who then avoid the campaign finance laws and, uh, and which allows the, um, the wealthy to control government. So the, the, the judicial branch uh, is not what the founders intended. And, you know, that's one of the, and it could be easily changed too. Um, other problems in government have to do with lack of term limits in the legislature and, uh, and the electoral college. We need constitutional amendments to fix those two, but imposing term limits and taking away the power of, of uh, judicial review from the judicial branch could be done through legislation. I realize I probably went kind of faster that No, thing. so it's corporate, it's environmental, the, it's the money. So those are the big three things that we'll be looking back on and saying, hey, these systems were really broken. Not sure what, what they were thinking. It was almost like the treatment of the Native Americans or you know slavery. It was just things that we were doing at the time we're doing now that are going to look fairly insane in the future, or you hope they will. Well, I think there's, there's so many of them. I, I just gave you a few. There's, there's many other things too. I, as I, as I mentioned, I, I wrote extensively about education. I think people in the future are going to look back on our horrible, the, the way we educate our children, the, the it's a leg, the, the current education system in the U S is a legacy of the Protestant, uh, Reformation in the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, we, we, one of the terrible things is competitive grading. There's no need to rank children against each other. Through the most formative years of their lives, for 13 of the most formative years, uh, we compare them to each other. And ones that don't, you know, excel in areas that someone arbitrarily said was important, we make them feel inadequate. We destroy their, their, the self-esteem of you know low and middle income no, low and middle uh, academic performers in school, and many people live the rest of their lives trying to prove that they they weren't as stupid as they were made to feel in their K through 12 education. There's no need to compare uh, children against each other. We only need to compare them against themselves to make sure that they're progressing. 
Another one is the standardized curriculum, forcing them to study things that much of which they forget and don't need for life success. So it's, they say it's important, but it, you know, kids do fine when they forget most of it. So there, there's so many problems with, with education uh, and other things, the, the way that also corporate welfare. I mean, there's, there's no reason why billions of people on this planet should be unable to meet basic needs. We've got plenty of resources. There isn't a resource constraint problem. It's how they're being distributed. We've had, you know, ever since the agricultural revolution through, through different forms of government, um, we've had authoritarianism or the wealthy controlling or the powerful controlling society and taking the wealth from the many. We still have that today. We could easily feed everyone on this planet and fix all our environmental problems, uh, you know, achieve the SDGs. All of those things are attainable. And they're going to happen one way or the other. You know, there's, there's going to be sustainable, uh, you know, life systems on Earth. That, that for sure is going to happen. The question is whether or not we are we going to be here. Kurt Vonnegut had a theory that the world was going to shake us off like a cold, that we're, we don't seem to be managing this very well, and we think we're in charge, and we're really not. It's, uh, you know, if we don't do something, you know, like, we'll, we, his whole theory was we're, we're, if, we, if we treat the world well, we'll stick around. If not, we won't be, and it won't, we'll, we won't have any control over it. Right? And, and it'll, get, it'll get back to normal pretty quickly without us. Well, he, absolutely. You know, the idea that we're above nature, you know, for, actually, it's, it's a good point. For all of, uh, for humans have been on this planet for about 200,000 years, uh, modern humans. And for most of that time, indigenous religions saw humans as part of nature, uh, no different. But with the, around the time of the agricultural revolution, we started violating old religions by pushing nature aside. And so we made up new religions that put us above nature and took God out of nature and said, God is somewhere else. This, and this I learned from Joseph Campbell. Me too. I was just listening to it the other day where he mentioned, I missed that in previous listenings to him. And I, so that, that's interesting you brought that up. But the, the idea is that we are living out, of, we're living in an illusion. We, we think that we're above nature or a steward of nature. We're not, we're, we're just like any other animal, just like every other species on this planet. We have to abide by the laws of nature. And that's the only way for us to stay here. Also, one thing, we sometimes trick ourselves into thinking we're the smartest creatures on this planet. But if you look at the immense sophistication of nature, like say, for example, the technology in a blade of grass, it's infinitely more sophisticated than anything we've ever done based on the results of what we're doing, destroying life support systems and making people unhappy. You could make a strong case that we're nearly the dumbest creatures on this planet we can be almost infinitely smarter than we are now and more successful. Nature meets the needs of, uh, of almost all uh, creatures. It enables them to reach their fullest potential. We're part of nature. We can do the same thing. We can be almost, I mean, I've talk, been talking about some negative stuff in this talk here, but I'm an optimist. I, I think we can be almost infinitely more prosperous than we are now. And I think we're gonna get there too. I just want to, and many other people want us to get there uh, through the least amount of pain possible. Sure. And the way that'll happen is to help people think at a higher level and not blindly believe the, the stuff from vested interests. What do, you, what do you think about, there's a lot of people that'll say, yeah, we've got all these problems, but technology, we're going to get smarter about technology, almost like banking on the idea that 
advanced technology is going to solve it. That you know we, we don't, we're not starving now because technology has provided food for the world that was not foreseeable. You know, by the time we need it, uh, someone's going to build that parachute. Well, yeah, we are falling off a cliff, but someone will build us the wings and the parachute, and we're we're going to be fine by the time we really need it. What's what's your thought on that? I think that that's a very irrational conclusion uh, promoted by vested interests. They, they'll often say, what that implies is that uh, it's okay to keep polluting, destroying our life support systems, filling up the land, air, and water with pollution, you know, making people suffer and unable to meet basic needs, because at some point, technology is going to show up. So what that enables vested interests to do is not make any changes, continue to maximize shareholder returns, you know, earning money by degrading society, it's just completely irrational. You know, we, we, we need to look at what's going on and do the best that we can. The idea that technology will save us, um, technology is driven by consciousness uh, and intelligence. And, you know, we can do a lot with technology, but it has to be guided. Right now, a lot of the benefits of technology are concentrated in a small group of, you know, wealthy investors. I mean, who, who so, you know, the, the Question is who who controls the technology? What's the consciousness of guide that's guiding it? The consciousness needs to be much more focused on recognizing that higher level thinking that Einstein talked about. That we're all in this together. We're part of one system, and we ultimately can only prosper if the whole system prospers. At that higher level of thinking, you see that helping someone else is the same as helping yourself because you're part of the same system. So once we start to have that mindset of let's work together for the good of everyone, especially those that can't protect themselves like future generations, then that'll lead to much more effective, I think, technology development and the use of technologies in ways that, that benefit all of society rather than just a small group of investors. We are in this all together. Right? I think um, Joseph Campbell mentions this as an illusion that we don't think we are. We thought we were in some of these earlier civilizations that we were all connected. But there's this, uh, there's definitely this feeling now that we're not, right? That we're not connected. We're, there's borders around countries. Uh, I'm in my air-conditioned car and I'm going to do what I want to do in my car. You know, it is these illusions of being separated. That might be the biggest illusion of all, right? That we're not all connected. And, well, that, one way to frame that up, and I've written a lot about this in my book and, and learned a lot about it from Joseph Campbell and his discussion of the myths of humanity and the evolution of uh, religion, again, is to look at the mindset of humanity. The early, the indigenous uh, peoples often uh, had like a, a systems mentality where they saw themselves as part of nature and they would, they would never harm nature or push it aside because that's, that would be the same as harming themselves. Um, but as we began to think more and kind of use the intuitive less, our five senses told us that no, we're separate from nature and each other. That led to fear of how my needs will be met. And in a fearful environment, comp competition was honored. So we thought we had to be competitive. If you look at nature, the overwhelming force there is cooperation, not competition. Like in a, one cell might eat another, but overall it's cooperative. So in an environment where we were uh, thought we were separate from each other, that led to fear and the belief in, in, in the need for competition. In that environment, men were honored uh, because men have more power if you define it as greater physical strength, greater aggressiveness, greater competitiveness. We've got up to 20 times more testosterone. And that's the main reason why men have been over women 
uh, for so many years because we're, we're living in the illusion of separation and fear, but it's killing us. The reality is, is that we're not separate. We are part of one system. And we have, in the same way we have men over women, we have power over wisdom. So in the same way men have more power, the way I defined it, wisdom has, women have more wisdom as defined by greater empathy, greater cooperation, uh, greater big picture thinking, greater relationship skills. These are exactly the types of things that we need to save humanity, to turn things around, to think at a higher level, to recognize that we're interconnected. And as we as a society begin to elevate wisdom to a position of, uh, to a position of equality with power, like in the yin-yang sign, it naturally will elevate women to a position of true equality with men. So that, you know, that was implied in a lot of Joseph, Joseph Campbell's work, the need to balance power and wisdom. We have an abundance of power and a lack of wisdom by definition. We've got great power to manipulate uh, the environment, but we're doing it in a way that's destroying ourselves, which means we lack wisdom. I think that's a, that's a big part of the um, of, of what we need to do to move forward. And we have, you know, as parts of nature, we have access to the wisdom that created that blade of grass or everything in society. Um, but we're not trained to use the intuitive. Uh, you know, women generally have greater intuitive skills, uh, but men can also develop them. That's in terms of a more sustainable education system. We would teach people more, young people more about how to access intuitive wisdom and do what Joseph Campbell says, follow your bliss, listen to your, you know, your inner wisdom and let that guide your life. And that will guide us, you know, to, to work together more and help us to, to move beyond the illusion of separation into the reality of interconnectedness. During the enlightenment, um, you know, Ben Franklin and, and others used to sit around these cafes in, uh, in the UK and France and just discuss these ideas with others. This is fun stuff that we're talking about, figuring out how to live sustainably on this planet. And the bottom line of all of it is to, you know, have a good time. You know, if we're following our hearts, I'm, this is my passion to talk about these things. So I, as you see, I can, I can talk easily about it, but it's fun for me. I'll be honest with you. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as you. I'm not a pessimist, but I think I'm a little bit back on the, on the, th on the gauge because I get concerned that there aren't world leaders talking about this anymore. You might not have liked them, but William F. Buckley brought up a lot of these issues, right? And I don't know if there is someone like that on the conservative end of the, and I don't know if there's a thought leader on the other, like a Gore Vidal on the other side, or I don't know if these conversations, Frank, are happening. That's, that's concerns me. I think that everyone's kind of concerned about their own little piece of the pie or getting reelected. But I don't know if everyone, if anyone's looking at the big picture on some of these things and actually not yelling at each other, but really having a discussion around these things and saying, you have a point, I have a point, we're, we're all connected in this. If you all say, hey, we're all in this together, someone will come and say, no way, U.S. first. That's not even something we can agree on most times is like when, when they say oh, we're all in this together, it's like, yeah, uh, who's we? It can be tough. So I'm a, I mean, are people, are, are lead, world leaders tapping into you and saying, hey, you know, reading your book and saying, okay, what do we have to do to, to get ourselves out of this? Well, there's, I think there are two levels of answer to that question, the, the ultimate level. But before I get there, um, I think, you know, talking about the, the divisiveness that you mentioned, um, it's true. Uh, we are becoming more divided, more populism. And I, I think that's a sign of our systems breaking down. If you look at um, 
large scale system change, it almost always happens quickly throughout human history. I forget if I mentioned, I think I might've mentioned the American and French revolution, uh, slavery and communism. Those changes happen very quickly. I think we're, we're in the middle of that now and this divisiveness shows that. A generation ago, for example, in our country, you could say something like, well, I generally vote conservative, but I think the liberals are right on these three issues. If you said that today, vested interests would, would come down on you like a ton of people are expected to walk lockstep and not think from themselves. They're supposed to blindly believe what they're told. Conservative media has created a lot of that kind of animosity towards, towards liberals. I'm not saying the liberals are perfect either, but right. on the conservative side, there's a lot of dislike or even hatred for liberals and, and not even wanting to, people are conditioned to not even listen to what they say. So if you try to explain logically why climate change is, is not a conspiracy theory, why it's real, many um, have been conditioned to just dismissing it. So it, it does appear, it does appear that things are getting worse and we're becoming more divided, but darkness can't survive in the light. And I know what's gonna happen. What's going to happen is that the laws of nature 100% are going to prevail on this planet. And one of those laws is cooperation and interconnectedness. That's reality. It seems like things are falling apart now, but what it's doing is ramping up pain. And at some point, there's gonna be a growing recognition that a lot of this stuff about the fighting between the conservatives and the liberals is people just being manipulated in ways that are hurting them and, and their children in many ways. And we'll get, we'll get back to a place where we can begin to talk to each other and reason things out and come up with the, the best conclusion. Forget about whether or not it's liberal or conservative. That philosophies just interfere with rational thought. You know, those in many ways belong in the garbage can. All we need to do is look at the goal. What is the objectively best way to achieve it and do that, whatever philosophy it is. That's, I, th I think we're gonna get all the pain, sadly, that we need to get to that place. And if we need to do more fighting with each other, we will. But you know, it, it, can't go on, it can't go on forever. Uh, at some point, people are gonna say enough is enough. The, the problem obviously isn't the liberals or the conservatives. It's the flawed systems that are concentrating wealth at the top of society and making people unable to feed their kids. Let's work together and fix those systems. You know, that's where we need to get to. That, that's what my work is and many other people's work is trying to achieve. Thank you so much for taking the time today and doing the important work on this. Frank, for people listening, maybe haven't heard you, where can they find, you know, your books or where can they find you uh, in social media if you participate? Um, well, I'm, uh, you know, not as involved in social media as I should be. I'm on LinkedIn, but the best place is to go to my website which is globalsystemchange.com. Okay. All one word, uh, system is singular, globalsystemchange.com. Okay, I will uh, put that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of this. Can we do this again? I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to have you back and we could talk about other things. Uh, Absolutely. You know, a lot of what you hit on, tangential to a lot of what Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. I mean, as a populist, we are actually going through this journey together, right? We're not... and. A lot of what you you followed your bliss in your career, so you're you're living it right now. If people haven't 
read uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. A lot of these themes are in his writings as to, it's almost like the answers are on the cave walls that our ancestors knew these answers through their stories of the myths that they, they told. Mm -hmm. I, that's what he was probably saying that, you know, the, the answers of life are known and, and they're, they're in all our myths. Those myths are there as guidance to how we should lead our lives. Yeah, I, I love Joseph Campbell. If, if anyone hasn't seen his six-hour series of interviews with uh, Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth, they, sh they should watch it. That transformed my life uh, 30 years ago. It, it was just, it's like the scales fell off my eyes because I had been raised a Christian and I had some concerns about, you know, when, when certain Christianity say we're right and others are wrong and you don't believe in Jesus, you're not going to go to heaven. And it's just part of, to the young me, part of that just didn't seem right. And, it, and when I listened to Joseph Campbell and him saying that all religions are attempting to explain something that's, that is ultimately incomprehensible to the human mind, but is nevertheless still real and we can perceive through our heart and all the world's great religions are essentially saying the same thing. And, you know, the bottom line of the most important commandment of all of them is to treat other people with kindness, love and respect. You know, so, so yeah, I love Joseph Campbell. And I, as you can tell, I love talking about this stuff. I'll talk about it as much as you want to. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you know Tim Ferriss, but he wrote the four hour work week. And he's, he's actually got a very popular podcast that I subscribe to. And last week, he just what he did is somehow he got the rights to the first hour of the power of myth and said, and he just said, Hey, I've been listening to something that's life changing. It's not something new. It's, it's, you know, 30 or 40 years old it's from the 1980s. He goes, but I, I, you know, it took a long time, but I got the first hour available. I'm playing it today. And it was interesting because I've been replaying that. Uh, my library has it that you can download the six hours and listen to it. So I have that on my, on my phone and I listen to it when I go running. It's strange. I listen to his, I go, okay, I'm going to take a break from this. And I go to listen to his podcast and sure enough, he's replaying it. <laughs> I just thought, I thought that was very strange. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to take a break from Joseph Campbell and, and uh, Moyers today. And I'm going to listen to Tim Ferriss and he's playing the, and he's, his whole podcast was the first hour of the power of myth, which someone's trying to tell me something there, I'm sure. But uh, I believe, I believe in the afterlife. And I, I think Joseph Campbell is, is probably sitting up there having a very good time and, you know, maybe pulling a few strings here and there. How was it that you and I got got? To yeah, play? right. It was. Uh, yeah, that's that's exactly true. Frank, thank you so much for for being part of this. Let's do this again. I'd really love to have you back on. And uh, maybe maybe after the election, the new year, we'll see how things are, are settling in. And uh, if if we're maybe experiencing more pain or less pain based on on how you think things are going. OK, I'd love to, Mike. It's been thank a pleasure. You. Anytime. Just let me know. Thanks, Frank. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Bye now.